Well, I'm in over my head, no one told me. Trying to keep my footprint small was harder than I thought it could be. I'm in over my head, what do I really need? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Welcome to In Over My Head, I'm Michael Bartz. My guest today is John G. Halstead. John is a research fellow at Forethought Foundation focusing on climate change. Prior to that, he was head of applied research at Founders Pledge, a philanthropic advisory service for tech entrepreneurs, and a research fellow at the Global Priorities Project. He has a PhD in political philosophy from Oxford and has published on a range of topics including philosophy, economics, and climate change. Welcome to In Over My Head, John. Hi, thanks for having me. So in talking about the just transition, we covered poverty and inequality, and this got me thinking about money and how we use it to affect the climate crisis. This led me to the idea of effective altruism. For those who may not have heard of this before, what is effective altruism? So effective altruism is broadly the use of reason and evidence to do the most good. The core idea is to combine the head and the heart. So say you want to go out into the world and do some good with your money or your career or your time in some other way. How do you do as much good as possible? So I suppose it's best known for encouraging people to donate 10% of their income to the most cost-effective charities, so those that save the most lives, debate the most carbon, and so on. But effective altruism can also be applied to decisions about how to use your time, what to do with your career, what to do with your lifestyle decisions, and that kind of thing. Okay, and, and so what sort of impact would that have on, let's say, climate change with giving 10% of your income? Well, I suppose, obviously, it depends how much money you earn. The median income for a full-time worker in the UK is about £40,000. So if you're giving 10%, you can then donate around £4,000 every year. In climate change, it's very hard to calculate how much effect this would have. But research by Founders Pledge, where I used to work, which does evaluations of various climate policy charities, suggests that you can expect to abate about 100 tons of carbon for each $100 that you donate to an effective climate charity. And that's kind of probably a, a bit of a lower bound. So then if you're donating £4,000, you can expect to avert around 4,000 tons of carbon. So to put that in context, if you're in the UK, your annual emissions will be something like five tons of carbon per year. Whereas if you're in the US, it's closer to 15. Although in both places, it's, it's declining due to environmental policies and progress in, in low carbon technology. So if the average person donates, they can avert 4,000 tons, but through their kind of living their day-to-day -day life, they can expect to emit around five tons. So it is this very large effect, I suppose, relative to the impact people have just living their day-to-day -day life. Yeah, and my understanding in, in doing a little bit of reading was that it's not about just donating once and then that's it. It's donating throughout your lifetime. Is that correct? Yeah. It's supposed to be this lifetime commitment where a lot of people have taken the giving what we can pledge, where you pledge to give 10% of your income for the rest of your life. And I suppose it comes out of this recognition that if you're on the median income in the UK, you're fabulously well off compared to the rest of the world, especially compared to the rest of history. So with great power comes great responsibility, as they say. So you have you can make a small sacrifice and make the world a lot better. Most people don't really notice if they earn like 10% less if you're in a rich country. So that's the rationale. And then I suppose like if you're a millionaire or even a billionaire, then you can have even more impact by donating even more money. Yeah. So that makes me think of the idea of the earning to give. So is there an argument for making as much money as you can so you can donate more to charity? 
so I suppose the effects of altruism became particularly well known in some places for recommending people take this earnings to give path, which instead of taking a job doing direct work at a charity, you'd go into some high paying job like finance or something like that. And then you donate the money that you earned in that job. The rationale for that was that say you're going for a job, a charity that's doing something for like working on climate change or working on global health. If you don't take the job, then what happens is the, the kind of next best person gets the job, who's maybe, you know, slightly worse than you are, assuming that you were actually offered the job. So that kind of diminishes the impact you have a bit relative to the counterfactual. Whereas if you take this job in finance, it's very unlikely that someone in finance would have donated. Most people in finance don't donate like 10% of their income or donate hundreds of thousands of pounds to charity every year, which you could do if you're in a, like a very high paying job in finance. So the argument is, instead of taking this direct job, you can work in finance or some other high paying job, and then you can donate to the charity and they can employ an extra four or five people or something. I think that's probably a bit of a caricature of what a lot of the effective altruism focused community actually thinks about earning to give, because now it seems most people are advised to do direct work. Like I work doing direct work, mainly focused on climate change and there's work we'd like to be done but there's not enough people to do it and we have the money to finance it so we kind of want people to go out into the world and get cracking that being said some people it probably is a good path to go into earning to give so sam bankman fried is i think still the richest person in the world under 30 and he is this explicitly earning to give focused person and he went to so ftx which is this crypto exchange in order to give away like 99 percent of everything he earns and he you know drives this very modest car and is a vegan and and what have you and he basically just did that just so that he could donate to effective altruist causes that's interesting but i feel like for most people they're probably not going to become a gazillionaire and then donate everything i think a lot of people who want to earn a lot of money are doing it for other reasons you talked a bit about getting involved in other work rather than just making a lot of money. So what would that look like for some people? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most people aren't going to go and earn billions of dollars. Um, but yeah, for most people who don't have this very high earning potential, which I suppose includes me, I think there's lots of options out there, not just in climate, but in lots of areas like you can go into politics and try and encourage environmentally friendly policies. There's various climate charities, nonprofits, think tanks that are doing lots of good work. I think people can have a lot of impact if they want to switch career. Yeah, so I'd encourage people to be ambitious when they're thinking about how can I have the biggest impact on the climate, not just think about their lifestyle choices and not just think about how much they could donate, but also think what they're doing with their career, how they're using their time, because you can make a very large impact if you choose your career wisely. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. Like, You don't just have to be a biologist or something. You could be an accountant or other skills that environmental charities need, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you're doing this podcast and that's like a, another good example of you think you can like have some impact by using your time wisely. Yeah, that's the hope at least. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's a good point, right? Because like you mentioned, maybe you're not making a lot of money. And, and I've been quite public myself, actually living my tiny lifestyle, also not making a lot of money intentionally rather than chasing that dollar, doing more meaningful projects. So yeah, let's chat a bit about that. So effective altruism is encouraging people to do that sort of thing. Yeah, I think a lot of people in the effective altruism community are focused on living a modest lifestyle. To a large extent, the roots of the movement come from Peter Singer and this argument, you know, like, imagine you could get into a pond to save a drowning child, but you'd ruin your expensive suit in the process. Most people think the suit doesn't matter, you should just get in the pond and save the child. So I think that line of thinking has 
probably had a lot of influence within effective altruism. So the basic thought being, if you can give up something that doesn't really improve your life very much to do something that improves someone else's life a lot, then you should do that. According to lots of plausible moral theories, it's not just this hardcore utilitarian thing, but it seems like any moral theory should say that you should do that. So to that end, lots of effective altruists are vegans and lots of them live relatively modest lifestyles. It can be a bit of a trade-off living a modest lifestyle and also using your time really well. Sometimes it can be worth it to sort of spend money to save yourself time so you can do more work and do more good, you know, rather than getting like a cheap flight where you have a layover in France for four hours or something and it's just kind of like kills your day. You can do something a bit quicker and be more productive in your job and that can have more impact down the line, if that makes sense. But yeah, it's kind of all rooted in this idea that just we have lots of power and lots of influence. And that means we have lots of opportunities to do lots of good, which I suppose is this just very exciting thing that isn't really salient to lots of people in their day to day life. Like you can just have this huge climate impact by donating, but people don't really know that there is this issue of whether donating kind of offsets any harm you might do through your lifestyle choices. So say, you know, I fly to the US and then if I donate to some effective climate charity, does that kind of offset the harm? Like I'm pretty skeptical about the idea that it does. Most offsetting schemes aren't very good and they just won't do what they say they do. If you get a flight in the UK, it will often say, do you want to offset the emissions from your flight? And the issue with that is just that there's not very much oversight into these offsetting schemes. You know, they're going to go out and plant trees somewhere or they're going to fund a renewable energy project in a developing country. But no one's really checking to ensure that that actually happens or to ensure that it wouldn't have happened anyway. An example is in California, there's an emissions trading scheme and businesses can buy forestry offsets. You can buy a project which is saying like, we'll prevent deforestation by this much or we'll plant this many trees. And it's just really hard to monitor forestry and the most credible studies suggest that it doesn't really work, basically. These offsets in, in the California system don't work. So it doesn't work very well in California, which is one of the richest jurisdictions in the world. Then imagine you're like trying to do it in Brazil or in Indonesia or in the Congo, which is where a lot of these offsetting schemes will try and do their work. And then it's just like even harder there. Monitoring is even harder. So that's one thing I think you need to donate carefully. Another thing is I, th I think it just limits people's ambitions a bit, which I suppose we've touched on before, but the thought is, you know, I, I emit around five tons per year or something like that, if I'm a typical Brit. That means I could only donate about five pounds per year if that's my sole focus, whereas I could have much greater impact by donating even more. Even if it's not 10%, I could donate a few hundred pounds a year, and then that's better than just focusing on offsetting the harm that I've done. I've spoken to entrepreneurs and they're like, oh yeah, I'm not sure how to kind of offset my emissions. And I sort of think, you know, it's, it's good that they're thinking about it, but at the same time, a bit like, you know, you're sat on millions of dollars and you could do a lot more by donating carefully. So I wouldn't just stop at offsetting the harm of my flights or that kind of thing. Yeah. And then I think there's all these like difficult ethical questions about whether it really does offset the harm that you cause. So offsetting is often parodied as being akin to like infidelity offsetting. So if I cheat on my wife and then I pay someone not to cheat on theirs, the total amount of Cheating is the same, but still it seems wrong because I've cheated my wife. And that's how a lot of people view offsetting. It's really complicated to think about these harms associated with your emissions and how donating affects that because 
the harms are spread out across the entire world and also spread out for like hundreds of thousands of years because that's how long CO2 emissions last in the atmosphere. So I would see it as more of a yes and rather than an instead. Doing both is good. You know, going vegan and also donating is good. And you shouldn't see them as like in competition, if that makes sense. Yeah, it seems like you can do multiple things for sure. And you talked about donating carefully. Obviously, like you mentioned, some of those offsetting programs that aren't effective. How can people be more informed when they're making these donations? Yeah, one straightforward step is just to look at the effect of altruism funds, which is a platform where there's lots of carefully evaluated charities working on different problem areas. So not just climate change, working on pandemic preparedness and global poverty and animal welfare. And they have fund managers who are like experts in doing these evaluations. So is it like a natural place to start if you're just figuring out that you want to do some good with your money and that's a good place to look. Charity evaluation is hard. I've done evaluation of climate charities and it is just really hard, especially because they're working on policy change. It's really hard to tell whether this Charity is saying like, oh, well, if we hadn't done this, then this policy would never have been passed. It's very hard to judge because it's like, well, maybe it would have happened anyway. Someone else would have just tried to do it or there would have been an alternative policy that would have been even better. Did they even have any impact on getting this policy passed? It's very hard to tell. But I think there are broad rules of thumb that you can use. One is just the most famous charities are likely to be already very well funded. So they're probably less in need of money than other charities. From my own experience, the most effective charities tended to be off the radar of the major funders. Charities can keep raising money, even if they don't really need it that much anymore. So it's a bit different to business in that respect. Even if the charity is not spending it very well, they can just keep getting money, if that makes sense. Well, that makes a lot of sense because, yeah, I think some people might have some skepticism with, yeah, maybe some of those bigger charities. If they get too big, then there's a lot more operating cost or or it's not actually going to the thing that it's funding. So I like that idea of perhaps funding smaller organizations or newer ones. When reading about effective altruism, it talks about neglected problems is, is what you're focusing on, if, that's, if I'm correct in that. Yeah, that's right. And so within climate change, some things are much more neglected than other things. At least over the last few years, most environmental advocacy and funding within climate change has gone towards advocating for renewables and advocating for forestry related things. And most of it has focused on emissions in the West. That's had lots of good effects. Renewables have declined in costs enormously over the last few decades, like more than 99%. Same for batteries, which is why electric cars are becoming so competitive now. But it's kind of like everyone is already doing that. So we need to think, what's the next thing where we can catalyze this big change in a technology or in a policy approach that other funders aren't already focusing on. And there's lots of money in climate change now. So finding stuff that's off the radar of major funders is pretty hard, actually. And that means that finding the most impactful opportunities is also hard. We want to focus on problem areas that are especially neglected. So pandemic preparedness, I suppose we've been focusing on that for a long time. Even pre-COVID, we were saying like, this seems like a big deal. Maybe we should put some more effort into that. Effective altruist funders were some of the main funders working on pandemic preparedness. That's definitely like a key insight of effective altruism. Not thinking like, what's good on average, but what should we do given how everyone else is spending their money? That makes sense. And so I guess, is there some crossover where if you're funding a poverty project, that's also hopefully helping with climate change? I think in general, it's probably better to focus on one at a time. Definitely one can benefit the other. But then like, on the other hand, there's also trade-offs. If you're thinking about animal welfare, chickens generally have worse lives than cows. So if you're thinking about how to improve animal welfare, you probably want to eat less chicken, eat more beef. But 
that's worse for the climate. So yeah, there are trade-offs, I would say. Another nice thing about effective altruism is that it allows you to choose between different problem areas and not just say like, oh, well, you you know, you have this portion for climate, this portion for global poverty, but also how should we think about deciding between working on malaria versus working on mental health versus working on pandemic preparedness or even AI related stuff. So that's another kind of nice feature that I quite like about it. So how do you make that decision of the things that you fund? Is it more about your personal values or is it more of a rationality thing of, this makes the most change for the most people. From my point of view, mainly the latter. The defining feature of effective altruism is it not being partial to a particular cause or a particular problem. Say I know someone with it, like some rare kind of cancer or something like that. From an impartial point of view, if I'm just going out there trying to do good and improve as many lives as possible, what should I do? So it's not like this thing of what's personal to me in that sense. Suppose you're deciding what to do and you want to be impartial. How do you go about doing that? And there's obviously all these difficult issues in philosophy to what extent you should give up projects that are close to you in the name of doing good from an impartial point of view. It's sort of a surprising thing about do-gooding that there hasn't been much systematic thought about that. And instead, people have been like arriving with answers about how the world should look. Libertarians want the state to play less of a role. Socialists want the state to play more of a role in the economy. Whereas EA, I suppose, is just asking this, just this question. Okay, supposing we have these aims, what do we do in the world to advance them the most? But yeah, in general, it's just really hard because there's just lots of uncertainty about the costs of climate change in terms of economic costs and health costs. And you have to make all these ethical judgments about how you weight the lives of uh, future people. So it, it is just very hard to compare. Some rules of thumb that people have used is it's scale, solvability, and neglectedness. So neglectedness we already mentioned, which is just how many resources is this already receiving? Another one is the scale of the problem. So how good would it be to solve it, basically? How good would it be to prevent all pandemics? Or how good would it be to completely solve global poverty or prevent all animal suffering? These are really hard questions, really hard to quantify, but you can kind of get order of magnitude estimates. You know, with animals, the sort of billions of chickens living really unpleasant lives. You have to make this call about how you compare that to the, the welfare of people living in extreme poverty. And obviously, there's lots of really gnarly philosophical questions about that. But it's sort of a judgment call that you just have to make if you're trying to do good from an impartial point of view. How do you trade off these things? And I think most people accept there are some trade-offs. If you offer the choice of improving one person's life a small amount versus preventing factory farming, most people would say, okay, yeah, let's prevent factory farming for that trade-off. And then one factor with the scale of a problem is future generations. If you drive your car, the CO2 that leaves the exhaust pipe goes into the atmosphere and kind of affects uh, CO2 concentrations for hundreds of thousands of years. So you're going to affect future generations. That suggests that because there could be so many people in the future, influencing how that future goes could be really important. That might mean preventing climate change, or it might mean something is going extinct from like Maybe nuclear war can make us go extinct or engineered viruses can make us go extinct or all sorts of advanced artificial intelligence could take control of the future or there could be some sort of global totalitarianism that emerges. But these are all things that could sort of affect how the entire future goes and then that could make a big difference to the scale of a problem. The last one is solvability, which is just what are the barriers to solving the problem? How easy is it to make progress? With climate change, I think... There are concrete ways to make progress compared to other global risks, which are mainly sort of future oriented. For climate change, we kind of know whether we're winning or not. 
if we reduce CO2 emissions, then we're doing well. Whereas with improving pandemic preparedness, it's really hard to tell whether you're even succeeding at all. So those are the three rules of thumb or heuristics that effective altruists often use when deciding how to choose causes. It's solvability, scale, and neglectedness. It's like a useful starting point. Yeah, so obviously it's a very complicated issue. This show is about empowering people to take action on the climate crisis. So what's one thing someone can do today if they want to get involved in effective altruism? The most obvious thing, I think, is just donating to the Founders Pledge Climate Fund. It's just something that's accessible to everyone. I think it supports charities that make a lot of difference and that have been very carefully vetted relative to lots of other charities. Beyond that, I think there's other stuff like voting for effective environmental policies and parties working to support that. If you're really into it, you could start thinking about how to use your career. Looking at job openings for the charities that Founders Pledge Climate Fund recommends. Going on the 80,000 Hours website and seeing what careers are out there. So there's a careers guidance service for people trying to do the most good. So those are things you can go out there and do. Perfect. Well, that's very helpful. This has been very enlightening, John. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, that was my talk with John. The one thing that stood out for me was the neglect side of effective altruism. Looking at things that aren't currently being funded and giving your money to that because maybe those big projects already have enough money. So for me, that was really insightful. Don't forget to check out the website, www.inovermyheadpodcast.com. There's other shows I've been on, talking about money and living with less, and pictures of the tiny house itself. So that's pretty cool. Well, that's all for me. I'm Michael Bartz. Here's to feeling a little less in over our head when it comes to saving the planet. We'll see you again soon. In Over My Head was produced and hosted by Michael Bartz. Original theme song by Gabriel Thing. If you would like to get in touch with us, email info at inovermyheadpodcast.com. Special thanks to Tell a Story High for making this show possible. I'm trying to save the planet, oh will someone please save me?